Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is a very important chapter in all of the Bible. It reveals to us the roots of all the pain and suffering that so many are enduring today. It relates to us what happened from when God declared everything good and then the disaster that follows, sin and death and destruction. So in chapter 3, let's pick up in verse 9. It, well, really, let's pick up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? You might want to mark that phrase. God reaching out to Adam. Where are you? Why are they hiding and why have they chosen to cover themselves? What, what, are, what is it about them that has, that has happened that now they're no longer drawn to God, but rather they're running away from him? Well, they had an awareness now. They had an awareness of the reality of their lives. They have an awareness that their works were still not good enough. They're covering themselves, but their works to cover were still not good enough to bring them into the pleasant presence of the Lord. And God's heart is broken, and he is now pursuing his creation. Now back in verse 8, remember, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord. They heard about him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and their response was hiding themselves. Some commentators, I wanted to share this with you, some commentators see this as an effect of sin. And the effect of sin that they point out is that they say kind of like a phrase, Adam and Eve went dark. And what they mean by that is now they're hearing things, but they're not seeing things. They're not living in the fullness of reality that they once had. They aren't able to see things the way they used to see things. Everything is now distorted and their hearts just went dark. It, it, they closed up instead of living an open life. And what it implies is that prior to the fall, prior to sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Lord. Remember that word fellowship. It's the same in the Hebrew as it is in the Greek. It means relation. You just think of relationship. The idea in the Greek word is to share in common. So, so now because of their sin, they're trying to take care of themselves or they're ashamed. They're covering themselves. They're running away. They're hiding, but they still hear. They still hear the voice of God. And it just reminded me in our own context today that it was, it's, it's a wise decision to purposely stay away from sin at all costs. To stay away because it breaks relationship and it causes you to go dark. You're not who you were meant to be when you live with unconfessed, unrepentant sin. It's been the theme uh, in our Bible studies over the last few weeks. You go dark. Notice the answer in verse 10. So he said, 
I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. That's a new emotion. That wasn't there before. Prior to sin, there was no fear of God to run away. It says, I I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And so all of these changes came, and, and he says, I didn't want to face you. Everything just happened. It just came upon it just instantly. I had all of these feelings, all of these responses, and and I didn't want to be near you, Adam says. I was afraid, naked. I feel with shame now. And so it's interesting in verse 11, God says, well, who told you? Who told you all this? Where'd you learn this from? How do you know? Which many people will come right here in the beginning of Genesis and say, wait a minute. So God doesn't know everything? He has to ask Adam for information so he can learn what happened in the garden. And there actually is a theology today that was popular maybe about 10 years ago. It's real popular on some seminary campuses now, but I haven't heard much about it in the last few years. It is a false theology of open theism, open theism. And I don't want to go into depth on it right now, but the open theist says that God learns what's going on at the same time you learn it which isn't God to me. (laughs) Like if God doesn't know what I don't know, we're both in trouble. And of course, God is omniscient and he knows all things. And and they will come to passages like this and say, well, here, see, this is an example. God doesn't know. And he has to ask Adam to find out what happened because he wasn't there and he doesn't know. And it's simply not true. I'll give you an illustration of what's happening here. Because what's happening here in its most basic explanation is that God is asking questions of Adam so that Adam might come to the realization of what happened. That Adam is going to learn right now. He's leading him. Uh, philosophically, you know, you, when you lead with questions, there is a way that you're drawing information out. So what he's doing is he's drawing information out. And, and let's just go to the classroom. Some of you are teachers. Let's just go to a first grade classroom. And in a first grade classroom, the teacher goes to the whiteboard, stands with the marker there, and says, okay, kids, we're going to learn some math today. Okay, yay, we're going to learn math. And so she, she writes on the board, two plus two, and then puts the line under it. And say, okay, kids, two plus two, what's the answer? Is she asking the question because she doesn't know the answer? She hasn't by now doesn't know two plus two? No, she's leading them in a path of self-discovery. She knows what two plus two is, but through the process, two plus two equals, ah, what is it? And as they answer four, they're answering something that she already knows. So God has the knowledge of what happened here for sure, but the questions were for them to bring out as they face more changes, harsh and horrible, as they begin to experience death and decay that's just up ahead, as they begin to see the leaves turn brown and animals' carcasses and, and vicious you know, attacks between the... When they begin to experience everything that's up ahead, God is preparing them. He's revealing to them of their current condition. God wants them to know where they came from. And God wants them to know where they're going. And it's an important question. You need to understand what, you, what you're telling me right now 
is something, remember God, we're learning that God forbids sin because it's good for us. He's thinking of us. And you could say here that what God is doing is saying, who told you this? Because I purposely didn't tell you this so that you wouldn't be harmed or hurt. I told you stay away from that. You, you ate of the tree, didn't you? Yes, we ate of the tree. And immediately there's fellowship and agreement. They're running away. They're trying to hide. They're trying to take things, you know, with the fig leaves and hide their nakedness. And they're running away. And what does God do? He pursues them. And then through conversation, he draws them back to himself. And now they agree with him again. They agree that they made the wrong decision, or at least that they did. They don't quite agree that they made the wrong decision, as you'll see in a moment. But they do agree that they disobeyed. And I want you to think of this perspective here, especially those that struggle with ongoing temptation, ongoing sin. I want you to think of this not as a harsh father or a harsh pastor who's trying to bang the pulpit and condemn you for your horrible behavior. That's not, I believe, the heart of God here at all. It's not the heart of God ever in Christ Jesus. I want you to see this in the tone of voice, because we don't have the tone of voice in the Bible. I want you to read this and hear this in the tone of voice of a broken-hearted God. Broken-hearted that here, they, they lived all this time in fellowship and relationship, and now they lost it all. And forever things are going to be changed. Everything's going to be wrecked. It's almost as if you could say, oh, Adam, Eve, what have you done? What have you done? That's, I think, the tone of voice here. Verse 12. Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, there's a lot of things that you can call this. Uh, one of them is blame, you know, playing the blame game. But there is a familiar psychological term that's used to describe this particular behavior. And by the way, it existed before psychology discovered it. And that is the word deflection. This is a great example of deflection. Instead of taking personal responsibility for their own behaviors, they first chose to blame someone else and then simply agree that they made the wrong decision, but not take ownership that they sinned. Because I mean, the proper answer to this is, the man said, I sinned against you, God. Please forgive me. That's the proper way. But instead... He blames the woman. Now, we do get hung up on that, and we do get a couple cheap laughs in our marriages. It's the woman you gave me. It's the woman you gave me. But I do believe we need to read a little bit farther than that to get the actual blame that's taking place here. He is not blaming Eve primarily. He's blaming God. And you say, Ed, where is that? Well, notice the woman that you gave to be with me. Ultimately, the blame is being placed on God. It's almost as if Adam is saying, if you didn't give me this woman, I wouldn't have been in trouble. I was just fine without her. But we know that he wasn't fine without her. God declared that it's not good that a man should be alone, that she was a gift to Adam, that this was God's heart to bless him and encourage him. But this is what sin does. 
It causes us not to walk in the truth. It causes us to walk in darkness. It causes us to blame everyone, but take, instead of taking personal responsibility. And if we're ever going to solve the problems that are among us, we must first take personal responsibility for our own behavior. If there's any secondary causes, any other issues, we can only deal with them after we take personal responsibility. And of course, our culture doesn't like that. So you also live in a culture that's very victimized. So now everything is, is interpreted of, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. Everything's done to me. I can't do anything. If it wasn't done to me, I'd be a better person. So it's, it's the Garden of Eden right here. Different words, different philosophies of thinking, but it's exactly the root cause of the fall of man is not taking responsibility. So what does that tell me? That tells me as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has made me whole. I am restored into fellowship. I'm a new creation. So when I choose to play the blame game, when I choose not to take personal responsibility, when I choose to deflect all of my behavior onto someone else, then I am in deep sin because I've been restored I've been restored to a relationship with God. I'm no longer a rebel. I'm no longer fighting him. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. And I'm telling you, so much can be solved and stopped and so many arguments could stop. If today as a believer in Jesus, you would just take responsibility for your behavior. It is not always someone else's fault. Perhaps at times, there could be a, a waiting, you know, 90, 10, 80, 20, perhaps. But even so, take responsibility for the 20. And the Lord will bless that. The Lord will use that. He will honor that. And, and even in the time where we have a marital discipleship and we have a couple in and it's him and it's her and it's him and it's her, what would I pray for is I just pray for a softness of heart. Because we're not going to make I let it go for a little while. Until, if it gets nasty and mean, I won't let it go. But if it's just expressing how they feel and what they have and going through and letting them talk about it, I'll let them go for a while. But in my heart, I'm praying two things. Lord, soften their hearts and let me, would you please give me ears to hear the point that I need to hang on to? Uh, just the point, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to come out in their calm? What is it that we can make one little step going forward? This is a much deeper thing than just a marriage. It's not just a marriage situation, blaming the woman, blaming the man, but rather man's separation. As he places blame on God, that's the separation. That's deep separation. It's your fault, God. It's not my fault. It couldn't be me. It's the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. And you know, God will be a debtor to no man. It is not God's fault that you choose to sin. Uh, it is not, ever. It's never God's responsibility. Remember Adam and Eve, we, we touched this on a previous study. Adam and Eve had a real free will choice. And as long as they chose not to eat of the fruit, they enjoyed everything. And when they free, nobody forced them. Nobody took it and stuffed it in their mouth. And nobody blocked them in and starved them. So that was the only food available to them. They made a free will choice. And now they're dealing with the consequences of such. Then the attentions turned to Eve and speaking to her, drawing out from her, what is it you've done? And so, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, another deflection. And blaming is a natural response. But we don't want a natural response. We want to live in the spirit. We want to walk in the spirit, not fulfill the lust of our flesh. And one thing can stop the cycle today. 
One thing can stop the cycle. If you choose to confess your sins, immediately you will experience the faithfulness of God to cleanse you, the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll enjoy forgiveness. You'll enjoy freedom, even if it's just for the moment. A lot of times there is this sense of condemnation because you do confess your sin, and then five minutes later you're tempted again. And you go, well, I must have not done it right. No, it's time to confess again. You're learning how to walk in the newness of life. And it may be every five minutes. You go, but it's so weary and I'm so tired and weary having to deal with this issue and deal with this thought and deal with... I know, but over time, as you do the hard work, over time, you're going to experience more of the victory. It's not your fault that all of these temptations and things, the enemy does shoot at you. But it is your fault if you mishandle them. So it's not your fault, temptation. Temptation is not sin. The damage we walk around with, the difficulties of our past, that, 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 that's unfortunate consequences of sin. And of course, it's maybe rooted directly to simple decisions we made in the past. But God is ready to free you. He wants to you walk in freedom. But if you don't do the hard work, you don't respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, your heart will get hard, you'll get separated, and you'll, you'll, be so much, you'll get so used to blaming that you'll blame God. That's one category of people, the prideful and arrogant, you know the other category of people? You'll blame yourself. Like you just make it all about you. And you just carry and heap you know, loads and loads of guilt and shame upon yourself. But that's equally as bad. Because God has forgiven you. He loves you. So you wrestle with things. You, you wrestle with who you are and what your identity is. And you know, all of that. You wrestle with things. That's part of the fall. But give God the glory for the victory you have. You, God has given you victory. You're, you're in victory. Yeah, but it's so hard. I'm so tempted. I know, but you were walking in victory. Don't blame God. Don't blame others. But also don't blame yourself. Let God do the thorough work in you so that you can walk in the newness of life. So notice, here's the result. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, of course, this serpent being indwelt by the devil himself, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. and Between your seed and her seed. You might notice if you have a New King James in your hand that her seed, the word seed is capitalized. Do you guys see that? That is a very particular seed, posterity. And if you're just taking notes, you can write next to it. That, that's a reference to Messiah. The enmity, enmity, the anger between the devil and the Messiah. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as God declares these curses, he's declaring the natural inevitable consequences of sin. He's cursing the serpent as a reminder of this fall above all the cattle and every beast. He's going to slither forever. And there's going to be enmity between you and the woman. But more importantly, between your seed, those that follow you, he doesn't reproduce himself. These, those are that will adopt you and follow you and reject God. And her seed, she's the human, she reproduces herself. And through her, Messiah will come. So if you're taking notes, verse 15 is the first prophecy in the Bible. This is a prophetic word from God of what will happen in the future. 
pointing to the coming of Messiah. It's the first messianic prophecy in the scripture. There's a lot of prophecy in here, but it's the messianic that's important. That's the, the real centerpiece of the Bible is the Messiah. And this is a prediction that salvation will come. This passage sums up really the rest of the Bible and all the activity. But not only is it the first prophetic passage, Messianic prophetic passage, but let me introduce you to a new phrase. This is also the first proto-evangel. And what that is, is it's the first, it's the first hint or mention of the gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel. And you say, Ed, where is that, the first mention of the gospel? Well, that there will be enmity between your seeds, or those that follow you, devil, in the demonic realm, the, the devil himself, and, and her seed, Messiah. And then notice, he's going to go after you, bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a, a hint at, just like we saw in chapter 1, we had a hint at, the fullness of the doctrine of the Trinity, where you have the Father and the Spirit of God hovering, now we have a hint, as, it, as progressive revelation comes and the whole Bible is written, we see it all now. But from this point, it's like God saying, in the curse, not all is lost. Not everything's going to be thrown. Not all is lost because there is hope. There is hope for you. More specifically, Again, getting a little bit deeper on Bible study here. More specifically, there is an enmity between the seeds. And this verse explains Satan's bloodthirsty desire to kill the coming Messiah by wiping out the Jewish race. And you may hear the, the desire to wipe out the Jewish race today. The phrase is anti-Semitism. This is where it was born, right here. The desire of the devil to wipe out the Jewish race for the purposes of eliminating Messiah. For a lot of different purposes, of course, but primarily to end Messiah. And you can follow it. You can look, at, you can look this up. You can follow it along right here. The very first thing we see is Cain kills Abel. And then Pharaoh wants to kill all the male children of Israel. And then Haman launches a failed attempt to kill all the Jews. Then Herod wanted all the babies killed in Jerusalem. Jewish. These are all Jewish people. And then the people wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff and kill him right there. And then the storm on Galilee that almost shipwrecked the boat where Jesus was sleeping soundly in an attempt perhaps to kill Messiah. And of course, the ultimate attempt to kill Messiah was what? The cross. He went after all the bloodlines and all the people. And ultimately, it's like, no, let's just get him. I'll get him on the cross. And he did indeed bruise his head. But of course, in the resurrection, Jesus, he triumphed and he bruised the heel of the devil. And as the Bible says later on in the New Testament, the devil knows that he has a short time. He knows that he has a short time. So it's, it's, it feels as if that he's pulling out all the stops before the second coming of Messiah, before the rapture of the church. Notice now in verse 16. To the woman, he said, God speaking, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. 
and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So now this is the first connection of pain with sin from God's perspective. Now I think they already had a connection with pain or discomfort with the fig leaves in the private areas of their body, but now God is saying sin will bring pain. And I know as Marie and I were raising our kids as believers, we were always wanting to associate pain with sin in some way. It wasn't punitive, it wasn't punishment, it wasn't, you've made me mad, so go to your room. Our intent was to associate sinful behavior with a commensurate level of pain. Because in the home, parents are very gracious and kind and loving. It's not going to be like that in the world. The world is very vicious and harsh when it comes to sin. Uh, it, is not, it is not favorable to, you're not going to get away with stuff in the world. So you need to learn that pain associates with sin so that you might stay away from sin. And here he's associating with childbirth anytime. Now, of course, I don't know uh, this multiply, I don't know the multiplication of sorrow and in pain bringing forth child. I don't know that personally, um, but I've been at three births uh, and it was from all observations a very painful time for my wife, my girlfriend for our first child. And um, now my wife with our other two, it was very painful. And of course, you ladies that have experienced that, you could tell that testimony. It was a very painful experience, which implies that if the fall didn't take place, that it wouldn't have been painful, which would be very interesting of what that might have been like. But we haven't experienced that. We didn't get to experience paradise apart from sin. So pain and sorrow comes with childbirth, the association of pain with sin. Remember Satan's promise to Eve, the deception, was he promised pleasure and fun. Well, what was the result? Pain. That's what sin, that's the temptation of sin. Remember, the question is, well, why do you sin? I can tell you why you sin. You like it. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't freely assess all the consequences that could come and do it anyway. That's why, that's why you could have a very best friend that you grew up with. You've been, been best friends for 30 years. And why the temptations you deal with are not the temptations she deals with. And you go, but what does that mean, Ed? Well, because different, you like different sin than your best friend. So that you might look at your best friend and go, oh, I can't believe it. Why would you do that? Why would you fall for that? I can't believe it. I would never fall for that. Well, that would not be a good way to treat your best friend. Because I'm certain that there are things in your life that would never affect your friend. Because the devil knows. He has schemes. We're not, the Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices. And his devices are to singularly tempt us in the areas. He didn't go after Adam. He went after Eve because then Eve, and you know, obviously he doesn't have all knowledge. He's just making assumptions here. But I believe he went after Eve for the deception and then allowed Eve to take care of Adam. He never went after Adam. Because there's devices. He's schemer. He's a liar. He's the father of all lies. And Eve's desire now, what, what the devil offered, this pleasure and desire, ended up being sin. And then notice part of the curse now was something fundamentally changed inside of women, inside of Eve. This is unique. This is the curse on Eve and all the daughters of Eve. This is unique. The desire now will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. 
Now, now reading in the English version, that doesn't sound like that's a big a deal. I mean, it does kind of sound like, what do you mean he'll rule over me? Nobody rules over me, nobody. But, but you're not, you have to understand the Hebrew language here and really understanding the essence of this. This is a difficult passage of scripture to be taken in by many women over the ages and it's been misused by many men as well. I think it's, again, it's part of the confusion of the enemy. He likes to confuse things. He doesn't want us to know the truth. He doesn't want us to live in the truth. He wants us to be upset even with each other, even in our marital relationships. He wants us to be selfish and self-centered, so he confuses things that God clearly says. He's kind of telling them, this is your future. I'm going to define for you how hard it's going to be because of what you did. And this is what the future is, and it's very gracious of God to do. He didn't have to do that. He could have let them experience it on their own. But God loves them, even after sin. He didn't stop loving. And let's begin, first of all, with this text, this passage, by what it's not saying. It's not saying that the wife is to be a doormat or the slave of her husband. It's not saying that the man is inherently better than the woman. It's not saying that God hates women. Uh, It's not saying that men are superior. It's not saying that women need to live in an abusive home or be beat up or anything like that. That's not what the Bible is saying at all. In order to get clarity on this, I think, first of all, we need to focus in on this word desire. So you can mark it there in verse 16 at the end. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, the Hebrew word there is much more than you will like him. And I want to show you where it's used in another place. Would you just turn the page in Genesis to chapter 4 in verse 7? The same word is used to describe something totally different. Notice, and he ties it together here in the very beginning. He says in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Same language. So the idea here in chapter 4 is that sin wants to master your life, wants to take control of your life, wants to take an unhealthy lead in your life. And I think that's still with us today. Sin wants to master us, knocking at the door, wants to rule us, wants us to present ourselves to sin. It has a desire, and now he's personifying sin so that we might understand that Sin wants to rule over us. If we pull back now the definition of that word in the context of chapter 3, what God is telling Eve is, is you're going to have an unhealthy desire to control your husband. It's going to be unhealthy. You're going to have an unhealthy desire to rule over your husband. Your sin is going going to create ongoing conflict in your marriage because you're going to want to take inherently the lead. Eve chose to act independently of Adam in the garden, and going forward, there will be an ongoing battle of the flesh. And because of sin, wives will have the same desire to rule over their husbands, just as sin desires to rule over you. And this becomes, this is the battle of the sexes, is where it started right here. The battle between men and women. This is where So much confusion and chaos has taken place where people, where there's unhealthy relationships between men and women, unhealthy relationships in marriages. Even a man uh, now taking this passage that he will rule over you and, and using it like a phrase of king. No, the ruling over the wife is to help bring order back into the home, divine order. 
We learned last time, remember, we, we view within the scriptures, we, have, we take a complementarian view of scripture when it comes to men and women, comes to leadership in the church. We, have a, we, we explain those two views in depth. But what's more important is not our view of, of how God uses people in church. That's not as important as God's view of men and women being together. They are to complement one another. It's not just the woman complimenting the man. It's also the man complimenting the woman. That's what's important. We get caught up in all the disagreement. We want to argue. Oh, everybody's place in the church and roles in the church. That, that, is, that is just a distraction because God's heart is for us to complement one another, both in marriage and in ministry, to value each other as the one that's created in the image of God, to help one another, to serve one another, and to recognize, for women today, you have to recognize in the flesh, there can be an unhealthy desire in you to rule over your husband. You just have to acknowledge that. Now, I don't know where it is in your life. I'm not sure if you've even experienced it, but it's part of the curse. If you have it, it's part of the curse, and it's unhealthy. And if husbands, if you come to this passion, you go, well, I have been put in to rule the roost. Well, that's unhealthy as well. That's sinful. You're to compliment your wife, not to be an overlord, to be the absolute authority. In marriage, it's a team. And so it is in the family of God. We're to love one another. We're to be gracious to one another. We're to serve one another. We're to build one another up. We're to edify. We're not to tear down. We're not to seek to harm the one that's closest to us. The Bible says that we leave our mother and father and what? We come together and we cleave. And it's our responsibility to create an environment where we want to cleave, where we want to be together. And of course, how does this apply in the single life where you have different relationships prior to marriage that we complement one another in the body of Christ? Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. But it's important that we learn to follow the divine order so that God will give us the direction. I've studied, we've taught this in depth in other places, Corinthians in other places, if you want to hear it verse by verse. But this is what's happening here. And I want you to think of one more thing here about how much God loves Eve. <laughs> Eve gets all of the flack here, and she shouldn't. They're equally sinful before God. Don't forget that. And God holds Adam responsible, not Eve, for bringing sin. He's the federal head. He's our representative. He's the one responsible for allowing sin to be spread throughout humanity. But I want you to go back now. and Let's put this together. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. But in verse 15, Eve is, uh, is given direction about, you know, the difficulty of, well, first when he's talking to the serpent, I should say, um, talking about her seed. So he's prophesying here. He's prophesying she's going to have children. Not only that, but he's also prophesying in verse 16, it's going to be hard and it's going to be different. I just want you to see something here. It's so cool, the grace of God. I'm telling you, if you look for the grace of God throughout the Bible, you'll find it on every page. This is so cool because the seed of the woman, I just, I just love how God turns everything on its head and says it's through women that salvation will come to the world. I know she gets pointed. She's the one that ate first, okay, but she's also the one through whom the Savior of the world will come through. And he redeems and restores something that would easily have been thrown away. Can't believe you did this, Eve. What's your problem? You know, Eve, Adam, it's the woman you gave me. Yeah, and the woman you gave me is going to bring forth Messiah and rescue us. Isn't that great? I mean, that's the grace of God. 
Like, and if we look for grace in each other, and we look for grace in serving one another, and we're just looking for ways to, we can see not only the sin, but the restoration of God. We can see, you know, I was just like today on the radio, like somebody asked about alcoholism and can an alcoholic be saved? Of course, a person that's a drunkard can be saved. Of course, of course, God can speak through all of that. But what it led me is, is that I'm not, I, I don't believe it's a wise thing that if you have been delivered from alcohol to continue to identify yourself as a slave to alcohol, which is what alcoholic is. Uh, you know, and I had to go to AA uh, many years ago, a court mandated, and I had to stand up before everybody, give my testimony. Hello, I'm Ed, and I'm alcoholic. Oh, hello, Ed, and I've been sober XYZ and all of that. If a believer goes into an alcoholic anonymous meeting for encouragement and support, I just don't believe you're telling the truth when you stand before that group and say, I am Ed, an alcoholic. You're not anymore. You are a new creation of Christ. Old things have passed away. God has broken the stronghold. He has delivered you from that past sin. And all you need to do is walk in the newness of life, moment by moment and day by day. That identity that we have, and the point that I would make here is that so many times we identify people by their sin, and that's wrong. It's not their past. They're not a recovering such and such. They're not, well, I know what you did 10 years ago. No, it's 10 years ago. So they are a new creation today. Even believers that have maybe stumbled, prodigal, got into stuff they shouldn't get into. We aren't going to hold the past against you, but rather we're going to point you to the upward call of Christ. You aren't that anymore. Now, if you want to be that, you can present yourself to sin. Romans chapter 6, I think, says. And you can be a slave to sin if you want. I guess if you want to get up in the AA meeting and say, I am Ed and I have chosen to be a slave to sin, you could say that. You could say that. That's a, that would be accurate. But then as you're saying it, you're spoke, speaking forth the word and God could free you from it. You, who wants to say that the rest of their lives? And I was thinking it came up uh, in the program where I'm just thinking of Rahab, right? We know Rahab. Many people think Rahab, her name, you know, her first name is Rahab, her middle name is The, and her last name is Harlot, because that's how she's recognized. She's often referred to that in the Bible. God used Rahab very greatly in the scriptures, and yes, she was in the sex industry. Yes, she did sell her, her body. Yes, and you know, God redeemed that part of her life, created an environment so the spies could come in and be hidden, it wouldn't be unusual for men to come in and out of, and it was also a God appointment for her that she wasn't going to be a harlot the rest of her life by those spies. Saved her through the red, red cord, remember? It's the crimson red line throughout the whole scriptures. So that when, if you get to heaven before I do, I'm going to teach you right now. I don't want you walking around heaven. You want to meet Rahab. I don't want you walking around heaven saying, is Rahab the harlot here? Rahab the harlot, where are you? I know some angel's going to come and go, shh, boom, and pop you in the back of the head. There's no harlots in heaven. You can look for Rahab the saint and Rahab the sister and Rahab the redeemed, but Rahab the harlot is gone. And that's the testimony of your life. That's the delivering power of God in your life. That even Eve making such a horrible decision. We're not going to stand in judgment on her. God redeemed her. God brought the seed through Eve. <laughs> I'm going to save you from the same, same person that started it all with the right humble brokenness. I'm going to use that same person and I'm going to turn this around. What the, as, we learn in, as we'll learn later on in a long time, we'll be in Genesis 50. When we get there, 
at the end, let me show you, give you a sneak peek, Genesis 50. Turn over there so you can see it in your Bible. We're going to get a sneak peek of this in its more fullest sense. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph is there, all is redeemed. He's looking at his brothers. It's a glorious time, very hard, but very beautiful. And what does he say? Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And so let me just tell you, you can thank Eve today that you know Jesus Christ because it was through Eve that the seed came, just like God predicted. He didn't throw away Eve, didn't toss her to the side. God didn't shame her, guilt her. He redeemed her and he restored her. And she's now a part of the testimony of all of us that get to experience new life. And in the seed, I want you to think of this as well, even along the lines of of identifying ourselves by our sin and what we've done in the past, and I'm always going to be this way. You're not always going to be this way. Temptations in your life don't define you. Your identity is in Christ. And you should email me. Email me this week. You're listening on the radio. Email me at ed at edtaylor.org and ask specifically for information on your identity, and I'll send it to you. And you can just start meditating on what God thinks about you and who you are, who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ. But let me give you just one thing that you have in Christ. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ today, some 2,000 years um, later now, we're later from the cross and six, 7,000 years from the beginning of time. Here we are experiencing life and goodness because why? Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, affirmed it when he rose again. He is victorious over sin. His life is victorious over sin. He's defeated it. So you and I now, for in our lives, we're not buried by our sin. We don't work for victory. We don't have to have major efforts to stay away from sin. And it's, it, it's not like that. We don't have to fight like that. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. I mean, it's a silly illustration, but I mean, if you play, if you play baseball and you already know you're going to win, you're going to probably play the game a little differently, especially if you're down 50 to nothing. If you're down 50 to nothing, but you already know you're going to win, you're not going to stress it. You're not going to go look for, so it's like, you're just, you're, you're going to play and have fun because you know, somehow it's going to, you don't know how, but God said you're going to win. So you're going to enjoy it. You're not going to freak out. You're not going to quit. You're, you're going to move forward. So at the end you go, oh no, I, mean, I know we're 50 down, but I'm victorious in Christ. I know it doesn't look good right now, but it's going to look good at the end. I know it's hard now, but it's going to be fine at the end. Why? Because of what Jesus did in the past. And that's all right here in Genesis, right here just in these couple verses. It's so encouraging. And so, verse 17, then Adam said, to, he, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the, tru- the tree which I've commanded you that you shall not eat of it, cursed on the ground for your sake. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And you shall eat herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. <clears throat> Wages of sin is death, Right? Because he says, out of it you were taken, to dust you are, and to dust you will return. I want to be very careful here that you understand. Work is not the curse. There was work before the curse. They tended the garden, took care of the garden. 
Work is not the curse. You go, oh, Edward, you don't work where I work. Work is not the curse. And even those that might come on, you know, to team here, to work here, I always remind them, this is in heaven. Like, you're not coming to work at heaven. Um, quite the opposite. We're all waiting for heaven. Amen? We all want heaven to come down in the presence of Jesus. So work is not the curse. It is the toil and the sweat and the hard and the difficult and the stacks of paper and learning the computer and the new, all of that, tilling of the ground. And that's the curse. That work isn't as enjoyable as it was prior to the fall. And it does take a lot of effort to make work enjoyable. Even if you have something that you like doing, that you love doing, that you're just good at, you still have your hard days, amen? I mean, even the things that you're like, this is what I was born to do. There's still hard days. <laughs> There's still challenges. It's part of the curse. It's to remind us, all of this is too, to remind us that there's a better place. We're just passing through. And the Lord is with us. Notice verse 20, he says, And Adam called his wife Eve. She was the mother of all living. For Adam and his wife, uh, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord, God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Another first. This is the first animal sacrifice. That where did the tunics of skin come from? Animals needed to die. And again, another hint of the shedding of blood that we'll have for us in writing by the time we get to Deuteronomy, uh, by the time we get to Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But you see it right here. There is a sacrificial animal that's taking care of the consequences of their sin here. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Another hint to the Trinity inner Trinitarian conversation, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat, eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden with a flaming sword with which he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Eve is named and Adam is, uh, we have this insight on the faith of Adam while the curses bring death and sorrow, Adam knew life would come. Then there's the sacrifice. God is being gracious to them, replacing their own work. You have to understand that the theme throughout the Bible is not based on your works. I know that's the modern Christian mantra today. That is much of Western Christianity. That is much of man-made religion. But even in churches that truly do love God and teach properly, they, they miss it on this point and they emphasize your works in order to be right with God. And so what does that do? When you fail, you become a prime target for guilt and manipulation. That's not God's heart for you. He doesn't motivate by manipulation and guilt. You know that? You know how he moves you? By love. And isn't that the greatest motivator? To think of how much God loves me and sent his son to die for me and how much he hasn't given up on me. He doesn't manipulate you and guilt you. No, he provides for you. You need something, he'll provide it for you. You can't present perfection to God, he'll give it to you of his own son. You think that fig leaves are going to be what you need to cover your sin? No, 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 no. Let me make something for you. Let me make something perfect for you. And in that point ahead to animal sacrifice, to the lambs that would be sacrificed every year, then to that, the lamb of God, that takes away the sins of it. That's what God is doing here. And he expels them from the garden. Again, you, can, you and I can sit here and go, what's wrong with God? Why would he do that? 
Why can't he just let them enjoy the garden? Well, he explained, I'm doing this because I love them. I'm doing this because I love him. I don't want them to live forever in this condition. If they took of the tree of life, now they're going to live in this sinful condition and it'll never end. And so I'm looking out for them even in their sin. And that is the heart of God. I know sometimes maybe a rule rubs you the wrong way. Maybe the speed limit rubs you the wrong way. Maybe a scripture rubs you the wrong way. But it's intended to help you. Not only to help you, but everyone around you. It's for your good. I can't believe you kicked me out of the garden. It's for your good. And you know, God doesn't need to explain why he does things to us. I know you demand explanations, but he doesn't need to explain himself to you. Just trust him. He's shown himself faithful before. We don't live on explanations. We don't live on knowledge. How do we live? We live by faith. And I trust my heavenly father. I don't always like it. And quite frankly, I don't always respond in faith. I don't stand here as some stellar example to follow. I understand what faithlessness means. I understand what being frustrated or upset with God's will for my life is. I get it. But I also understand that faith triumphs my doubts. And faith continues to be moving forward. And that God has promised that even in this life, if things don't line up the way I desire, all the difficult things I've experienced, all the hard things, they're making me a better man. They're conforming me in the image of Christ. They're shaving off the flesh. I know you would like a, if you want to deal with the flesh in your life, give me a Bible study. Give me a t-shirt. Give me a bigger Bible. But you know, sometimes it's only through experience and through the providential will of God where he knows exactly, like a master sculptor, right? He knows exactly what needs to go. And so he chips it away, chips it away. It could be a very painful process. But even in these painful things, suffering the consequences of your sin right now, yeah, but God is there. God is with you. He's going to take care of you. And what do we have at the end of chapter 3? The fruit of mixing good and evil will now be confusion, pain, separation, chaos, spreading throughout the world. You know, when you, somebody asks you, why is there so much evil in the world? You could say it because of sin. Why is there so much nastiness? Why do they keep ripping off our catalytic converters? Because they're sinners. And they're separate from their master. Why is there so much confusion? Why is there so much... All of, because the fall of man is real. And so is the redemption of man. So is God's heart to bring you back to himself. And if you will come to him today, he'll receive you. If you admit and take responsibility for your sin, he'll receive you. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. Confusion is not sin. Sin is sin. Not understanding is not sin. Sin is sin. And let somebody help you along the way. Clear out your mind so you can see and hear God clearly being restored through being born again. So Father, I pray as we have this privilege of studying your word tonight, this is a glorious a truth of your redemption power that even through Eve and the mistakes that she made, you also used Eve to bring about the salvation of the world. And for that, we're grateful. Let us be men and women of grace. Teach us what that means. Walking in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. 
For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.